I wanted to draw attention to, as we get started today in the message, in Luke chapter 11. Uh, I think that's where that's, what that address is. I don't have it in my notes. Yeah, Luke chapter 11. Um, as we, we, we've been talking about, we're, we're going through the book of Acts, and, and for those of you that are unaware, we're, we have a reading plan. We've been going through since uh, the beginning of June. And you can find this reading plan on our website. You're going to want to check it out and follow along with us. This last week, we were reading uh, Acts chapter 4 and 5, and I'll be speaking on that this morning. But I wanted to encourage you to get into that. Even if you're, you've fallen behind already and you're like, ah, I'm not going to catch up, it doesn't matter. Just join us wherever we're at in the process. Read the chapters for the week. Meditate on those scriptures. Let them ruminate in you. And then we get together on Sunday and we hear a message that pertains to those. I would encourage you uh, to do that. And in the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but uh, we, we learned from the Bible Project people when we watched a video at the beginning of the series that really it probably should be called the Acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Because really, this is Jesus continuing to build his church. He's just ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has just come in power. And Mark Spencer shared with us last week. How many of you enjoyed Mark's message last week? I've had so many people talk to me this week going, man, Mark's a cool guy. He is a cool guy. I really appreciate Mark. And he talked about the man uh, that was healed in front of the temple. Who had been, he's over 40 years old, and he, he was lame, and God healed him. And he talked about seeing with new eyes, and God seeing us in a different way than maybe we ever saw ourselves, and maybe things that God has in store for us. It was a great message. And, and so we're going through the book of Acts, and, and we're asking ourselves some good questions, like what does this teach us about God? What does this teach us about us? What do I need to do differently as I learn these things about the church and about what God's doing? And uh, before we dive into Acts, I want to reflect again on the Holy Spirit, because really this is, this is the beginning of the era of the Holy Spirit in which you and I still live. God has sent himself to dwell in us as little temples. That fire has come. The fire of God's presence is resident within his people. And so it's important for us to Reflect on that as we're going through this entire series on the book of Acts. And Jesus was teaching in Luke chapter 11. He said this, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Next one. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. That's kind of strange. Go on to the next one. But many of those who had heard the word believed. No, there we go. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God gives good gifts. God gives good gifts, and he's challenging us to ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. If if we know how to give good gifts, how much more does our heavenly Father give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Can I ask you this morning, are you asking? Are you asking for the Holy Spirit? Are you asking for God to lead you like we see in these examples in the book of Acts? It's it's acts. It's action. We're a people of action, and it's an action that's prompted by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Our good Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And we see in the book of Acts that they are walking in this power. 
They're, they're seeking God and the power of his spirit, working through them to see the church launched. I don't have any one particular story this morning that I wanted to share. I just wanted to go through both chapters and skim the surface and see what we get through today. But I just wanted to discuss with you a number of things that jumped out at me as I was reading uh, this last week and, and studying. And the context is this. Peter and John, you know, this man gets healed. Apparently his name's Jimmy, according to Mark. Yeah, how many of you caught that? Uh, how many of you said, it doesn't say his name's Jimmy? You know how many angry emails I got this week that there's not a man named Jimmy in the Bible? I didn't get any. I'm joking. Okay, that was a joke. I'm pretty sure everybody got it. But they, they, this guy gets healed, and, and they they're begin to share with the people. And then as they were speaking, the people and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came in greatly annoyed. Do you know it says greatly annoyed in the Bible? Have you ever been greatly annoyed? How many of you have been greatly annoyed already today? The, the, the leaders were greatly annoyed. They're annoyed that they hear these guys teaching about Jesus and the resurrection. But I want to draw your attention to verse 4 of chapter 4. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed. They're believing what they're hearing. And the number of men, this is just men at this point, came to about 5,000. Remember, Peter has just preached a message full of the Spirit, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Here we are, not very far down the road. They're up to 5,000 people. Can you say megachurch already? That's not a recent phenomenon. See, it, it's, it's a huge movement. And why is that? Because 500 people in one spot saw the resurrected Jesus. A man rose from the dead. We talked about this back at Easter. One of the most significant things, cornerstone of the Christian faith, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And so many people witnessed this, that this thing is exploding all over Jerusalem and in the area. 5,000 people already because of their testimony. I, I saw a thing this week where something, I don't know, was it in Las Vegas or something? Like an alien crashed in somebody's yard? How many of you know what I'm talking about? There's some sort of UFO crashed somewhere kind of thing. And it's like, when one person comes and says, I saw an alien, I'm like, uh-huh. But if 500 people at a rock concert saw an alien, I'd be paying attention, right? When so many people saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, that's not just one false witness trying to sell a story. You're talking hundreds of people who have witnessed Jesus resurrected, and so this gospel is starting to explode, not to mention the miracles and the things that are happening. 5,000, this is a movement. It's massive. And that just caught my eye in verse 4. And while they're there, they're being questioned by these leaders. And they asked a question that I thought, I don't know why, it just caught my attention in verse 7. It says, and when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Okay, in, in this day, they understood a miracle had just taken place. Something beyond any of them. And they understood that there had to be a power beyond them to get this done. By what power did you do this? They're suspicious. Remember, we see Jesus was even accused of using the power of demons to do the things that he was doing. Those things are very real. By what name did you do this? 
See, there's a whole slippery slope we could slide down here about the power of the name of Jesus, the authority of the name of Jesus. It's not that they're magic words when you say in the name of Jesus, but it's that there's an authorization there. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying in his name, we're coming in his, wearing his um, credentials, if you were, if, if you humor me in that. We're coming in his name, in that kind of authority. By the authority of Jesus, this man was healed. By the authority of Jesus, demons are cast out. By what name? See, even the, even the Jewish leaders understood there was something powerful at work, and they're trying to get down to the bottom of it. By what name? Whose power, whose authority did you tap into here to see this thing happen? That, that should maybe teach something to you and I about what we have in Jesus, an authority, a power. Why? Because we're his children, because God has adopted us, because on our birth certificate, he's written there as father. He is our father. There's an authorization that comes. So they had, it's just a significant thing. And so they're being tried, and Peter, of course, he gives a message to these guys, and I don't, I, in verse 12, it says, and there is salvation in no one else. You've probably heard this before. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. This would be a very countercultural message today, and indeed it still is. There is no other name. There is no other authority. All paths don't lead to the same place, the Bible teaches. And that's an uncomfortable reality for some. I think we can, when we see that Peter and John are in this situation, I think you and I can learn that we can expect to be persecuted, questioned, challenged. That's, that comes with the territory of being a believer in Christ. From, the very, from day one, these guys are mocked. They're challenged. And it's not because God doesn't love them, see? You know, when we talk about a father that loves us, uh, it's just been a theme on my heart this morning, and is that what is love? What does it mean to love? I, I don't think love is just letting everything slide. You know, when we discipline our children and we're raising them up, we discipline them. We bring instruction. Sometimes we bring punishment in order to steer them in the right direction. And like the book of Hebrews says, we do what we think is best, but our heavenly Father knows how to discipline us so much more. And so when we're going through something like, I mean, if you put yourself in John and Peter's shoes, that would be hard. I mean, what if the city of Helena came and drug you before the city council and is challenging you and questioning you? That'd be awkward and uncomfortable. Wouldn't feel like, well, does God see me? Does he love me? Does he care about this struggle I'm in? I think Peter and John, you know, we just go, ah, oh, they're heroes of the faith. They were full of the spirit. Yeah, they were. They were bold. They were strong. That's true. But we also do recognize that they did not have it easy. This wasn't like a smooth sailing journey for them, and we'll see that all throughout the book of Acts. It's not, God never said this would be a smooth journey for you and I. We don't get saved so that we can have it easy. It's a, 
Something to think about. So they get questioned. They have some great answers for the leaders we see throughout chapter 4. Then they get released. The guys say, hey, no more talking about this Jesus. Get out of here. They leave and they come back together and they're released to their friends. And they pray together. They celebrate God. And when we get further in to verse 28, you know, they're praying about what's going on and how God's fulfilled his scriptures. And verse 28, it says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We see a sovereignty scripture here. This didn't all happen by accident. Sometimes it could be easy to look at history and go, that was all God's plan. But then we look at our lives and go, that's not God's plan. It's too messy. It's too difficult. There's too much bad stuff. We screwed it up. You know, that there's a mystery that, that in the middle of the sovereignty of God and the will of man. You know, there's no perfect answer for these things. Somehow we have choice and somehow God gets done what he wants to get done. And that's good enough for me. I'm going to rest in that truth. Because what do they pray here? You know, they're talking about Jesus being crucified. They're talking about, you know, how, how there, there was persecution there. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Boy, they were trusting in God and believing that this was part of his sovereign purpose on the earth. Can you take some of that on for yourself? Can you stop in this moment? Can you pray to God and recognize, God, you have a plan. You're working things out according to your plan. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that about your own life? Do you believe like these guys believed that he was accomplishing his purposes? There's so much peace and rest in that reality. And at the end when they're praying, there's a very interesting passage here. It says, and when they had prayed, in verse 31, in the place they were gathered together, it was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know, we, I started to talk about this subject a little bit when we were looking at Acts chapter 2. But in the theological world and in many churches, there's a lot of debate about what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Is it something you receive one time? Is it something you receive at salvation? Is it something you need separate from salvation? You know, and there's some controversy about that. We'll continue to unpack that as we go because we're going to see this a number of times throughout the book of Acts. And when it comes to that situation, one thing I want to be sure that we're all on the same page about is that you need to ask and keep on asking. That you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Were these guys filled with the Spirit before this? Yes. Are they filled a second time? Looks that way to me. Again, the Spirit has come in power and filled them. Is this the baptism of the Holy Spirit or is it just filling with the Holy Spirit? You can see that theologians start to pull their hair out at this point. I think we need to just pause and go, God wants to fill his people with his Spirit. And he does it over and over. It says in here, Peter stood up and he talked, and Peter, full of the Spirit. Are they just referring back to one moment? 
Or is it something he's constantly walking in? And when the, and the occasion calls for it, does he step up into that anointing, that power? He does. It's amazing. And so the way I approach this is every day praying, God, fill me with your spirit. Soak me, immerse me, lead me. Help me think like you think. Help me see like you see. Help me see what the Father is doing. Help me respond according to your word. Help me walk like I'm walking hand in hand with you in every decision that I make. I want to be full of the Spirit every day. And again, they're having another experience where the Holy Spirit is manifesting itself in the shaking of the place they're in. I hope God shakes this place. I hope you and I have opportunities to sense the power of the Holy Spirit coming and just going, mm. I don't know how to say There aren't words, right? Just, mm. It's like, what's being filled with the Spirit like? It's like, mm. <laughs> Yeah, because God is present. You're a temple, and His fire is in you, the fire of His presence. And sometimes He manifests that, and He manifests it in our gifts. Why do we have gifts of the Spirit? They're gifts of the Spirit. Because the Spirit lives within us, we have gifting. Something we're bringing to this community to share, to encourage, to strengthen, to build. It's all of God's spirit. Again, I would ask you the question, are you asking? If he is your father who knows how to give the good gift of the Holy Spirit, why wouldn't you be asking every day for that gift? God, fill me with your spirit. Bless me with your spirit. Lead me according to your spirit. All of those kind of things that we see in the scripture. And these guys, they got together, they prayed, they just went through this amazing healing and then kind of this little trial. And they get together and they pray and they thank God and he fills them with the spirit. And so they keep going in boldness. That's the church. That's you. That's your heritage. These are your ancestors, your spiritual ancestors, right? This is who you are called to be. It's exciting to be a part of the body of Christ. I want to move on into verse 32 of chapter 4. Now, the full number of those who believed were, they were what? What were they, J.R.? What does it say? So it's talking something about how they're behaving, what their characteristic is, what their nature is. They were of one heart and soul. This is, this is a significant demonstration of unity. I wonder today, are we of one heart and soul? Those are significant words for the Bible to use, really, actually very significant. And in fact, I, as I was reading this and, and meditating on this, I actually got kind of uncomfortable. Like, whoa, that's some unity. I don't know if I want to be that unified with everybody. <laughs> One heart and soul. It, it, there, there's, there's a cohesiveness, a vision, a direction, a mission that they're on together. They're, they're like-minded. They're not divided they're moving in unity. I doubt they all agree about everything, as we'll see in a few minutes. But they're of one mind. And I just found that comforting and encouraging. And then it gives us more detail. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own, but they had everything in common. What does this mean? They're sharing. They have everything in common. No one's claiming mine. I mean, that's like one of the first words we learn as kids, right? Mine. Yeah, that's right. Mine. It's mine. Mine only. You don't touch it. I don't share. 
But that's not what the body of Christ is called to. The body of Christ is to have things in common. To be, these guys are being generous with one another. Nobody among them is needy. No one's, no one's in, I mean, we're, it's not that everybody had the perfect house and the white picket fence and the boat and the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is about sharing in one another's needs. Have you ever been the recipient of just a kind, generous action by somebody? I mean, sometimes we've had really significant acts of generosity, huge things. As we see, these guys are selling property and giving the proceeds to the apostles. But there's also other little things. I just, don't you just love it when you run into somebody and they just, brief conversation, they share a smile and you walk away going, I like that. Or somebody buys you lunch. You ever been in the drive through line and someone in front of you paid for your stuff? And then you're like, I'm going to pay it forward. That'll be $927.15. What? <laughs> Guy ordered the whole store behind me. No, you pay it forward. Generosity will get, go right to the heart of people, doesn't it? When you give. Give is kind of contrary to our selfish and sinful nature. I don't want to give of my time. I don't want to give of my resources. I don't want to share my stuff. What if they break my drill I loaned them? You know, that's how we are with our things. And yet these guys have everything in common. It's a beautiful picture of unity and generosity. And it's meant as a demonstration for you and I today as what part of our heritage is. Are we looking to one another and looking for opportunities to be generous? Not to sow through the church so you get a tax deduction, but to just notice a need of somebody and help them. Because that's what generosity is. Anyway, I find this very encouraging. It goes on. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I love that. Great grace. I would love to be in a place full of great grace. Yeah, isn't that fun? And we are. <laughs> this is a gracious bunch of people. I love being a part of us. And I, I love just reaching out more and more for that grace, of people of great grace. Again, is grace anything goes? No. That's not what the Scripture teaches. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, this is our introduction to Barnabas. He's a main character now through the rest of the book of Acts, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of a glimpse into the economy here, and I don't know if the Jews were really obeying this at the time, but if you understand the Jewish economy, um, every 50 years they had a year of jubilee. And all of the lands went back to the original tribe owner. So like you and I buy something and we get a title and it's us for etern ours for eternity or until we choose to sell it, right? But that's not how it worked in the Jewish system. When they, you know, if you bought a piece of property, you paid the value of it between now and the year of Jubilee. So if it's like 10 years until Jubilee, it would be less than if it were 50 years until the year of Jubilee when that property would go back to the original tribal families when Israel was, uh, after Joshua took over Israel and it was distributed to the tribes. Anyway, it's something really worth looking into. 
But just so you and I understand, they had a different economy going on here. We learned about the gleanings when we talked about Pentecost, where they would leave part of their field unharvested so that the poor could come along and, and, and take some of those gleanings so that they could be taken care of. God had a system of provision uh, for his people. Anyway, they're buying and they're, or, I'm sorry, they're selling and they're pooling their money together. And then we get into Acts chapter 5, which is probably one of the, in my opinion, one of the most difficult stories in the Bible. And it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. How many of you before this knew the story of Ananias and Sapphira? And how many of you laid awake at night going, what in the world was that about? This is a tough one. And I'm not pretending to have all the answers for you, but I have some suggestions. I'm going to read the story to you. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Great. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And if it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. Then later his wife comes in. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. She also doesn't tell him the truth. She falls down dead as well. They come take her body and bury her next to her husband. This is a disturbing story. And people would ask, why would God do something so drastic in this situation and take these two people's lives? I mean, I've been stingy before and God didn't strike me dead. Right? And I've told a lie before and God didn't strike me dead. What's going on here? There's a powerful lesson. There's some interesting thoughts. There's a lot of different thoughts about what's going on here. But I think, first of all, we need to recognize that there, there is, in some way, there's an intentional act of deception going on. There was an intentional lie. Like, you know, they, it's almost as if, you know, a lot of guys, a lot of theologians and people that talk about this, you know, they recognize that a guy like Barnabas sells the property. You know, it's an honor. It's an honor to give and, and not and, and to, in a significant way. And these guys were seeking the same honor but wanting to have some benefit. There's a, um, I have a quote here by a guy named Scott Barchi. He puts it like this. By lying in order to achieve an honor, they had not earned, that they had not earned, Ananias and Sapphira not only dishonored and shamed themselves as patrons, but also revealed themselves to be outsiders, non-kin, not really having the same heart. And, and as Peter says that, we, we would have the tendency to go, wow, that seems like God really overreacted in that situation. But there's something deeper going on here. Peter says, the money was at your disposal. Why would you lie about it? And for whatever reason, they lied to the Holy Spirit. It reminds us uh, of a story in the book of Leviticus. So keep in mind that in this situation, God has just changed the covenant with his people. 
a new covenant, a covenant in the blood of Jesus. And he's just given the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. It's a powerful moment. We really haven't seen anything like this since God established covenant with Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai where he gives the Ten Commandments. And they begin to establish the priesthood and they begin, uh, they set up a tabernacle and they start to do the sacrifices and they're getting all this Levitical system, the Jewish system into place. But Aaron, Aaron, who is Moses' brother, he's the priest, and his sons are priests as well. He's got four sons. And in Leviticus, I believe it's, what chapter do I got there? Do I have that passage? Ten, yeah. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, you know, an incense deal, and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Go to the next passage. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. See, in in the same way, Aaron's sons decide to take it upon themselves to do something in the presence of God that he has not authorized. God is holy, and he's asked something very specific of the Levites, and these guys kind of go rogue, and it costs them their lives. So there's, there's a parallel somewhere here. I haven't figured it all out necessarily. But with God bringing this covenant with the Jews, he also demonstrates that he's not to be trifled with. God won't be mocked, the Bible says. And there's something here, I think, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira where there's an intentional withholding, a lying, a deception going on, and God's not going to have it. And what does it say? Great fear came. Fear like awe and amazement. See, I think that you and I should also take note of this and realize we can't mock God, we can't deceive God, we can't fake it. There has to be a a realness and a sincerity in our journey. And it's a sobering reality, I think. This is a sad story, and one I don't fully understand and certainly obviously can't completely explain. I know God is just, and I know he has his reasons, and I trust him with that, but it cost two people their lives when they deceived in what they did. I want to skip to the last story in the book of Acts, and I'm just going to give you a quick overview of what went on. Peter and John, they continue to preach and the other apostles, and they get arrested again, and it's one of the most famous stories in this section of the Bible they're, they're in jail, and an angel lets them out. Now, how many of you have ever been in jail and wished an angel was letting you out? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I ain't, no, ain't no angel letting me out of jail, I can tell you that. But these guys were innocent, and an angel let them out. It's just an amazing story. Everybody's stirred up. There's amazing things happening. The Jews don't know what to do with them. They've been let out of jail. They're being asked questions. And they get to the point where they're ready to kill them. They're so angry. I'm going to pick up the story in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged. So far, they've been annoyed. They've been amazed. Now they're enraged, we see in this process. They're enraged, and they want to kill these guys. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, 
a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And so Gamaliel stands up and he starts to give account. He's starting to um, try and counsel these guys about what to do with them. And he starts to tell the story. He's saying, hey, remember this guy, Theodos, who rose up. He claimed he was somebody. He had like 400 people with him. Once he died, they were split up. Then there was a guy, Judas the Galilean. Remember he rose up in the days of the census? A lot of people went after him. Once he died, everybody was scattered. And then he says this, verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Remember, this is, this is one of the Jewish Pharisees. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Gamaliel understood something. Remember, he, as a Jew, he's honored God. He, he's part of that whole process. He knows about who God is. If this is not of God, it will fail. He's talking about this new Jesus movement, these Jesus people. But, verse 39, key passage, but if it is of God, you will not be able to to overthrow them. Reminds me of the passage, I will build my church and even the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Gamaliel understood something, even though he's not with these guys. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. I love his objectivity here. He's not hook, line, and sinker, dogmatic, being Jewish here. He's stopping and recognize bigger picture. If this is from God, you won't stop him. And if it's not, it's not going to prevail. I, I just so appreciate his attitude. I wonder sometimes if you and I could learn from that in our situations, in our circumstances, in the way we navigate life. How much credit do we give the devil for all the things that go on in our lives? Things like that. But do we trust God like this? I trust God. If it's not of God, it won't succeed. If it is of God, he won't stop it. It's almost, it's almost like he's prophesying, isn't it? He did, they didn't stop it, did they? Went on and changed the world. If God is for us, who could be against us? This is God's heart for his church. This kind of destiny, this kind of path, power, unstoppable, generous, gracious, God with us. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. I just had to chuckle when I read this. Beat them. Well, I got pulled over on the way to church he just hit me a few times with his billy club and let me go. I'm good. Beat. They didn't beat lightly. They were beaten. And what did they do? And they left the presence of the council, having just been beaten, rejoicing that they were count- Wait, what? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I don't know about you, but if I got drugged before the Helena City Council and they beat me, I don't think I'd be leaving rejoicing. Would you? Kind of look at 
the prideful attitude sometimes in our culture, in our context. How dare you beat me? How dare you insult me? I'm offended. These guys rejoiced. They were physically beaten for preaching about Jesus, and they rejoiced that they were worthy of that honor. That is a totally different mindset than what you and I live in today. But what can you and I learn? Can we draw something out of this for our own attitude? Would you stand with me? Next week, Acts chapter 6 and 7. So how many of you are going to agree with me? We will read Acts chapter 6 and 7. Commit. Come on. Come on. Do it. You can do it. Acts chapter 6 and 7. It's not hard. You can sound out the words. It'll be good. And we'll, we'll see what the message next week, how it encourages us. So, uh, Thank you for joining us this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. God, I pray you bless each family today, each individual as they go about their day. God, that you would be filling them with your spirit. God, that you'd be reminding them, ask, ask, ask. I am your loving Father who gives the good gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And so we ask and keep on asking. Lord, fill us, lead us, guide us. We thank you for your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to receive prayer this morning, our prayer team over here would love to pray with you. Anything at all. Don't be scared. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Have a great week.